For as long as there have been human relationships, we have struggled with the overwhelming nature of grief following the death of a loved one. Why does grief hurt so much? My guest, Mary Frances O'Connor, took it upon herself to study grief from the perspective of what the brain is doing during grief. Perhaps we could find out the how, and that would help us understand the why. Next on the Executor Help Podcast. This is the Executor Help Podcast. Learn how to settle an estate, pick an executor, and avoid family fights. For more information, go to davidedy.com. Now here's your host, David Eady. With me on the show today is Mary Frances O'Connor, who is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Arizona, where she directs the Grief, Loss, and Social Stress Lab, investigating the effects of grief on the brain and the body. She's also the author of The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. Mary Frances, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. It's so nice to be here, David. Okay, so let's let Let's start this off because when I wrote my book and being, um, you know, talking to people, I found out that in the areas of end of life, grief came up a lot. And of all the things that you could have chosen to study, grief was the area that seems to have caught your attention because that's you made it sort of your life's work. Was there some sort of personal experience that left an impression on you that you want to study grief? Yeah, the, you know, the there's always some sort of background, isn't there? And for me, it's that my mother was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer when I was 13. And then uh, she, you know, wasn't supposed to live through the year, which, you know, I didn't know because I was 13, but I knew that grief certainly came to our house. And she actually went on to live another 13 years. So wow. she died when I was 26. Yeah, her oncologist called her his first miracle. Um, And so I guess because of that, I just felt really comfortable with grieving people. And, you know, it doesn't bother me if you cry uncontrollably. And I think that meant I was able in my work to do a lot of interviews with people who were really experiencing profound grief, and then to try and match up what they were telling me with the brain images that I was taking and the blood tests I was doing um, to try and understand the why of grief and grieving. So all of the people you you talked to during your research, you know, um, what did you learn? Was grief the same for everybody? From my personal experience, the grief I went through losing my parents, I can see how it's changed our family because we're broken up now. Talking to others, some people, when they go through a grieving period, they their, their course of life, I know in my case, has changed. So what did you learn from hearing from others and when how they handled grief? Grieving can really be thought of as a learning process. We suddenly have to make sense of the fact that this person is gone and who are we when they're gone and what does this mean for our life? Uh, I would say that each person ends up learning different things because that relationship is going to be different. The context of that role that person played in your life will be different. Um, Even sort of what age you were 
when the person died is going to have an impact on your grief. So grief is a very individual experience, even though as scientists, of course, we can see patterns. And for example, one of those patterns is actually that most of us, as as much suffering as it feels, most of us are actually quite resilient. And, you know, we do manage to get dinner on the table most of the time, and we manage to get out to work uh, or get our children onto the school bus. And so I think that much of what we think about grief that feels sometimes really abnormal, this can't possibly be how it's supposed to go, is probably more normal than we think. But is grief sort of an emotion that you don't know how to, like you had said, you know, when you were 13, you were hit with this grief and and fortunately it stayed an extra another 13 years but it's unexpected you don't know where to come where it comes from it i look at it as sort of a slap in the face it's out of nowhere so you don't know what to do where do you go and and how do you make and and also the other thing is it's not also the you know the grief losing a a, a human being it could be a loss of a pet a lot of yeah. people are very you know, attached to their pets, and sometimes even more than their own uh, relatives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's grief. Is is that kind of grief the same as losing a a spouse or a a loved one? It is uh, the case that you can't really talk about grief without talking about love and bonding. And when we fall in love, whether that you know, falling in love with the person who becomes your wife or falling in love with your baby, that actually physically changes our brain. We know that that rearranges the proteins in our brain and the patterns of neural firing. And what it means is that once that bond exists, that then when we're separated from that person and when that separation especially is permanent, then we necessarily have a reaction because that bond was there. And you're right that that bond is uh, attachment between two beings. And it's sort of the, I will always be there for you and you will always be there for me. And obviously that describes a pet very well, often. Um, That sort of unconditional love we get from a dog or um, the sense of caring for, you know, a cat or a rabbit or. And so those relationships are also attachment relationships. And we even have one neuroimaging study of pet loss and the results of that don't look very different from MRI studies of human loss. Yeah, I can I can relate to that because in our household here, uh, we had two cats. I shouldn't I shouldn't say had. Well, we had three at one time, down to two, and each time it was a it was grief. You could feel it in the house. My partner, she just she was a wreck. But, it's profound. And when whether it be the the grief, or the loss of an individual, and through the research that um, you did with people. Why do you think that they were so willing to share their experiences, to go through what they went through? This has always been something I've I've tried to um, understand what their motivation is, because I want them to feel that 
um, their contribution is being used in the way that they would want it to be. So their contribution of telling their experience, you know, offering blood, sweat, and tears, so to speak, um, for science. Many of them actually describe that they're participating for two reasons. One is that their loved one may have had some connection to science or research or medicine or education, something in some way they feel that contributing to these scientific studies, that they're honoring their loved one who, who may have had a value uh, around uh, research. And the other reason that people tell me is they say, you know, this is such an awful experience. If there's anything I can do to contribute to a better understanding of it that might make it even a little bit better for the next person who goes through it, that that is a worthwhile reason to participate. I think the people who participate in these studies are very genuinely motivated and and I have great respect and gratitude for the the time and the depth in which with which they participate. So for you to go through the the research having gone through what you had went through at such a young age what were you hoping to discover what were you hoping to learn from all of these conversations and the research? A lot of people have written about what grief feels like. And that's so important because when we hear what other people are feeling, sometimes that can really make us feel more normal in our own experience. But I've always been motivated by the why question. Why do we feel this way? Why does it hurt so much? Why does it take so long to really understand what it means for my life that this person is gone? And to some degree, the how questions as well. How do does the brain take this marvelous experience in the world of loving this person and turn that into some sort of encoding in this little gray computer in your head? And then once that's happened, how does it understand what it means that this person is gone? So it's really those why and how questions that have continued to motivate me and will continue to motivate me uh, as, as I do research. And so at what point in your life, not getting into age, but having what you've gone through and at such a young age, what was that snapped and said, you know what, here I am, Mary Frances, I'm going to, this is what I want to dedicate my life to learn about grief. What was, what was that tipping point for you? For me, it was, I, I was already in graduate school when my mom died. So I already had decided that psychology and clinical psychology were really interesting to me and, and something that felt like a profession I could really um, dig into and really felt meaningful. And I was very interested in the physiology of psychology right from the beginning. And I think it was discovering the broken heart phenomena the fact that when, uh, say, for example, if a man loses his wife in the next six months, he's almost twice as likely to have his own mortality as compared to a similar married man. And that fact, the fact that the epidemiology really just over and over again makes it clear that this is a, a, real, uh, a real fact made me think, well, gosh, if there was ever a, a way to study the physical impact of emotions, of relationships, that probably 
grief is 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 a really ripe place to try and figure some of that out. And so I think it was a constellation of things that came together that meant I I just remained really passionate about these questions. It's funny you should say that. I, I had a client, his wife had passed away and it couldn't have been more, it was probably less than a year. He fell ill and mm-hmm. passed away right after. And I guess it's the grief overtook him because they were, you know, together for so long. And I guess his life, he saw no, you know, even though he had kids and grandkids, he saw no reason to carry on, I guess. And he wanted to be with her. It's a mysterious process still to this day, but we know that it is a risk factor um, for all cause mortality. Uh, And so I think it's something, it's something I continue to delve into and I try to work with clinicians to think about treating it as a real risk factor. Um, and, and hopefully the, the sort of medical treatment of grieving people will improve as we understand more about the science. Yeah, it's kind of like one of your favorite, <clears throat> excuse me, one of your, my favorite uh, metaphors from the book, whereas where you say no one expects that, uh, no one expects their dining room table to get stolen. And no one expects their loved one to die. Even when a person has been ill or for a very long time, no one knows what it will be like to walk through the world without this other person. Yeah. And, and it's so disorienting. And when you when you came to realize that the brain has a, a problem to solve when a loved one has died, what happens to our brains when there's grief? Well, it's a funny thing about the brain that it can actually be listening to two streams of information at the same time. So on the one hand, you have a, a memory system, right? And and that memory system is able to recall that you were there at the loved one's bedside, for example, when they died, perhaps, or you remember that terrible phone call, you remember the funeral or the memorial. So on the one hand, your brain is able to sort of recognize the reality of this loss. But on the other hand, we have this attachment neurobiology that once that bond is formed, the belief is I will always be there for you and you will always be there for me. Well, the problem is both of those can't be true at the same time. They can't both be out there for me and also that they have died. And so I think part of the reason it takes us so long to understand what's happened and the importance of what's happened or the meaning of what's happened is because our brain is trying to work with these two pieces of information that that can't both possibly be true. And I think when we think about it from an attachment perspective, Attachment neurobiology is there in order to make us yearn for that person when we're separated from them. And while we're alive, that's a very good thing, right? So the only reason you can, you know, go off to work every day or send your children off to school every day is because you know at a very deep level that everyone is going to do everything in their power to come back together again, to be reunited again. And so the brain has a solution for if your loved one isn't in your presence. And the solution is just go get them. And and powerful neurochemicals are sort of motivating you to do that. And then of course you have this abstract situation, this very rare event where that person dies and that solution no longer works. 
you can't just go get them. But many people will describe this experience of, you know, I know they've died, but it just feels like they're going to walk through the door again. And I can't really explain that. And I think that comes from our attachment neurobiology. Like I said, the, the, the just the, the this emotion of grief, when you're talking about the brain, you know, where you're talking about, you know, it's you expect of the loved ones there. And then you have this out of the nor, out of the way, um, not out of the way, but the spot, the situation where grief comes into your brain and it's, yeah. it does a lot of crazy things to you, which can, I guess, physiologi- phys- physically and also mentally have uh, an impact on you. And, uh, and that's, is that, is it different for grief? I think we're going over what we had said before. Does grief affect people differently when there's a loss? Yeah, the you know physically as well as mentally, grief has a different impact depending on you know, like I say, all sorts of things. We know it's important to have social support. You know, we know that it's uh, particularly problematic if there are big financial changes that come along with the loss of a person, um, and and so those sort of additional stressors can or additional resources can really make a difference. Um, as we're trying to, you know, learn how to be in the world now. Yeah, and that's why I love, there's a quote in your book that says, grief is a heart-wrenching, painful problem for the brain to solve. And grieving necessitates learning to live in the world with the absence of someone you love deeply, who is ingrained in your understanding of the world. So can you break down for me, what's the difference between grief and grieving? I do use those words separately, and partly this came about because when I was doing neuroimaging studies, you know, we'd bring a person in and and interview them and then have them um, go into the scanner and take, you know, pictures of their brain. And in that moment, they are having that overwhelming feeling of grief. Um, And and that moment, moment is so important. It's so much that a person has to deal with. But I realized that that is grief. And a lot of my scientific questions were actually about grieving or the process, the the change over time. And so if I was going to do a study of that, I would need to bring the same person in more than once, right? Because grieving is a process, what has changed over time. But this distinction then between grief and grieving became important to people I was talking with because I was able to explain to them, you know, grief is just the natural reaction we have to being aware that a loved one is gone and that it is a natural reaction that can happen anytime. If I come across, you know, my mom's handwriting, something falls out of a book, a letter falls out of a book or something, and I see her handwriting, I will have a wave of grief in that moment that is very intense, even though it's been decades since she died. But the important thing is, because I have that wave of grief, it doesn't mean I've done anything wrong up to that point. It doesn't mean I'm not grieving correctly or that I'm, you know, suppressing something or grieving means that our experience of grief changes over time. So I don't have those waves of grief nearly as often as I did at one time. And 
even more than that, when I have that wave of grief, I know it, it's familiar. And I maybe have a better sense of how to comfort myself or how to reach out to someone um, because I'm having that experience. So grief will change over time, but it won't ever actually go away. Why is it so hard to understand that a person has died and is gone forever? The brain is really, you can think of it as a prediction machine. And it gets its predictions from lots and lots and lots of experience. So if you wake up every morning and, you know, your your husband is there next to you, then the morning that you wake up after thousands of mornings of waking up next to your husband and you wake up and he's not there, it's actually not a very good prediction that he's died, right? It's a much better prediction. He's on a trip or he'll be back or and so what that means is the brain doesn't update its predictions overnight it takes a long time and a lot of experiences for the brain to be willing to predict their absence as opposed to their presence and i think that's part of why it takes a long time that these two streams of information you know trying to figure out how those two fit together and then just thinking about all the millions of things that we do that incorporate our loved one. And each of those has to be updated, right? So you don't have to buy soy milk at the grocery store because your lactose intolerant daughter is is not eating at home anymore. Or uh, you have to figure out how to do the taxes when you've never done them before. Or figure out where am I going to retire? How am I, what is retirement going to look like? Because I've always made plans to do that with this other person. And so the many, many things that have to get updated, that takes a lot of processing power for your brain and often is sort of happening in the background while you're trying to do whatever you're doing in the moment. And I think this is part of why people experience such concentration difficulties. They often feel like their memory is going. Um, and these are normal experiences that tend to um, be alleviated as you have more experience and you come to understand what grief is and how this fits into your life. So then why is it so, why are there so many ranges of emotion associated with grief? Boy, there are so many intense emotions that come along with grief from, you know, traditionally we think about sadness and yearning, but anger is very common. The feeling of guilt, the feeling of blame, uh, feelings even of relief sometimes, which people then often feel really guilty about experiencing. And I think the range of strong, intense emotions is partly because relationships are as important to human survival as food and water. And so if someone is missing, then it is vital to understand why. And if we are still thinking through, what does this mean? Then those emotions, with all those powerful chemicals that kind of come along with them are going to keep reappearing for us. I have a friend who, you know, in our friend group whose mom had died and he cared for her. And it had been about three months and 
we were, these friends had been out golfing and we're standing around afterwards and he got really angry and he, he even said something that was really unkind to, to a friend and, and our, you know, the group of us were sort of like, what just happened, you know? And later I said to them, listen, it's only been three months. All of the emotions are turned up for him right now. And when I talked to him later, he said, you know, I feel really badly about that. He said, it's so hard for me to be with all of you because you're happy. And I feel like I should be happy, but I'm just not. I'm so upset inside that sometimes I just even feel angry being with you. And, you know, let me ask you. So when he he had when he said those unkind things because of who you are and what you do, you understood Whereas yeah. everybody else might have been looking like, what's his problem? It's been three yeah. months because a lot of <clears throat> people who see people who've had a loss or whatever, you know, a lot of people just want to say, you know what, get over. It. It's time to get over yeah. it now. Yeah. And whereas you as the professional, you see, no, I totally understand where he's at, right? Where he's at. Yeah. So, so he's actually lucky that you're in that group. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose in a way, I think many of us do, you know, even if we're not experts, many of us have had grief experiences. And I think when we are able to reach out and say, hey, it really feels like you're having a tough time, or even you seem to be doing really well. And I just want you to know that you don't have to be doing really well. We can hang out even if you're not feeling really great about about things. Um, I think that making that connection with each other and giving each other a little bit of a benefit of the doubt can go a long way to making grieving people not feel so isolated in their experience. We talked a little bit about, you know, grief and how people handle it differently. You also say that, you know, grief can is like taking up oxygen in the room. So what can we do when we feel overwhelmed with grief? As a person who's grieving, and also the person, uh, you know, the friends, like in your case, saw somebody else who's going through grief, how can you help them? I think it's really important to have what I like to call a big toolkit of coping strategies. And it isn't that any one strategy is the right thing or the wrong thing to do. It's more about how does that strategy work? right now in the situation that you're in and then how is it going to work for me in the long term as i'm as i'm grieving as there's that change over time so as an example you know if you're at your daughter's soccer game you may decide you know what for the next 45 minutes i'm going to pretend like nothing bad has happened i'm not going to focus on this loss at all i'm just going to cheer for my daughter and that is going to be the total of my focus And we could call that avoidance or denial. And in that moment, it's totally appropriate, right? And so it isn't that any one strategy is going to be always a good thing or always a bad thing. Now, the trouble is, if I'm just going to put it out of my head is always the strategy that you use. In the long term, that's probably not going to give your brain a lot of experiences and processing to know what is it like to be now here with other people while I feel this way? Or what does it mean to um, uh, ask for comfort or to find ways to soothe myself? So it is important to have multiple ways. 
And I think that for people who are sort of grief adjacent, a similar thing can be said. I think most of all, not to leave people alone, to not leave that situation where your friend got angry and be like, oh, I'm not going to talk to him anymore. You know, he's, I don't know what's going on that, with him. Is that because people are uncomfortable yeah, about the whole death is. issue, the loss, and people just and, don't know what to say, what to do? Yeah, and it, it, is, it is hard to sit with someone who's suffering. That is... That is a tall order to be able to just let them speak or or cry or be silent. And I think many of us think our job in that situation is to cheer them up. But that's not actually necessarily the job. The job is to just be there and listen to them and offer them what you might be able to do to help. But it isn't about cheering them up because in a way, like with my friend, that can actually make them feel more isolated. But I don't feel cheered up. And I'm either going to pretend that I feel cheered up to make you feel better, or I'm just going to feel like I don't want to hang out with you because you don't really understand where I'm coming from. And mm -hmm. so I think it's okay to say the wrong thing. It's okay to um, not know what to say at all. And to just communicate that, hey, listen, I want to spend time with you. I want to do that in whatever way is going to feel comforting or helpful. And so if that means, you know, let's go watch the really stupid rom-com movie, I'm up for that. If it means you want to sit and try and sort through some closet clothes, I'm up for that too. I think a lot of times people make it about them because they're uncomfortable trying to help the other individual. Rightly or wrongly, it's a, you know, we're all going to go through it at some point where there's going to be loss. And again, it's um, with that loss comes that grief. And uh, whether you're going through it or if you're helping somebody out, you need, you need to figure out how are you going to carry on to move on with, you know, the rest of your life. After reading your book, what do you hope the reader will walk away from it? For most people, I hope they'll get a sense of, gosh, what I'm feeling is more normal than I thought. There's a reason that my brain is doing this. And, and perhaps also recognizing how universal grief is, that I say in the book, you can't actually give grieving people advice. I don't think that's how insight really works. But I love this metaphor of I can lend you my glasses and that might bring something into focus you hadn't noticed before. So my That's glasses, you know, good the one, good one, you good know, one, good one. yeah, the prescription may not work for you. You're probably going to give my glasses back, but it might mean that you see something a little bit differently for yourself. And so I hope that that's what people will take away from the book, perhaps slightly new ways to think about a really old issue. Right. So in closing, is there anything else you want to add to help the audience either someone who's grieving or someone who has to help uh, someone who's grieving? I think just to give yourself a little bit of self-compassion and grace. One of the kindest things my best friend said to me was, you know, you're doing really well in an impossible situation. And you're trying so hard when you're grieving to, you know, get the right shoes on the right feet when you get out the door, that hearing that from someone, it means a lot. Uh, so I would say trying to give ourselves and each other a little bit of grace. Well, 
So where can people find you if they want to get in contact with you, get your book? How can, how can they do that? I have a website for my lab at maryfrancisoconnor.org and the book is available in all sorts of different formats, ebook and and audiobook uh everywhere books are sold. Great. Mary Frances O'Connor, I want to thank you. She's the author of The Grieving Brain: The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. I want to thank you again for being on the show and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much, David, and thanks for bringing this conversation to people. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. To catch up with all the latest from me, go to davideady.com. There you can follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next time.